Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Good morning, Sober Stories crew. Let's dive right in on this beautiful Friday. Today, I have a wonderful guest with me, and I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Millie Gooch was really one of the first people I feel like trailblazing in this space in a time where there really wasn't a visibility around young people, young women specifically in sobriety. I had the joy of interviewing Millie Gooch, as many of y'all know, is the founder of Sober Girls Society. And I had just a great conversation around this idea of how alcohol comes into play in our social rituals, what it is like to be a young person, especially in their 20s, choosing not to drink, really understanding how to navigate social situations sober and kind of redefining what feels cool and fun and good and stepping into the space of glamorizing sobriety. We had a great conversation today and I would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. So after you give today's episode a listen, tag us at We Are Sober Stories and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. Sober Stories crew, I have a very exciting conversation today. I am talking today with Millie Gooch of Sober Girls Society. Millie, welcome to Sober Stories. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I think you were maybe one of the first people I saw on the scene in this sober space, uh, especially like in the late 2010s of like when there wasn't a sober space online. It was a really budding corner of the internet and a lot of people were not yet talking about it. I think folks who are coming into sobriety, sober curiosity now have this really like rich wealth of resources, people to follow, inspiration. And when Sober Girl Society came on the scene, it was kind of a brand new idea. So I'm really excited to hear more about your personal story and how you got where you are and created Sober Girl Society. So if you're good with it, I'd love to just dive right in. Of course. Um, so I, I will try and keep the drinking story as brief as possible. Otherwise, <laughs> we could be here a long time. Um, I right. mainly started drinking when I went to university. So I was... Uh, 18 and that here in the UK is obviously when you can legally yes. start drinking as well and I am like one of the ones who is like born latest in the year so I literally turned 18 and then three weeks later went to go and live on my own in a party town with a bunch yeah. of other 18 year olds <laughs> um, and I went to work in bars and in clubs we have I don't think you guys have it over there but we have vodka revolutions which mm-hmm. is you know it's, it says it in the name it's, a, it's like a chain of bars and they have kind of like you can buy a paddle of shots 
shots, which is like 25 shots or something. So it was like a a regular night. Um, And my (laughs) binge drinking was like three, four times a week. But it was so kind of normalized at that time of like, that was the culture. And we also had this uh, show here, which obviously you guys have Jersey Shore. We had Geordie Shore, which is people from Newcastle. And, you know, the whole whole premise is uh, you you go out and you get as as strong as you possibly can. And I was like, this Uh is great. I love this. Because, you know, all the girls on there were like, I felt really empowered and and that's kind of like who I thought that I wanted to be. So yeah, my drinking kind of started there. And then after I left university, all of my friends, their drinking kind of started to slow down and mine Mm. just didn't. And I went to work in, first of all, I went to work in PR and then I went to work in journalism at magazine. And both of those were quite booze heavy industries. So there was a lot of parties, there was a lot of drinks. And I think just really slowly, but surely I always say alcohol kind of turned from something that I just started because everyone else did and it was the norm into something that I felt like I was needing and that Mm. wasn't necessarily in the sense of I was waking up and the first thing I was thinking was I want to drink but in the sense of I couldn't go out without it I couldn't socialize Mm -hmm. without it I couldn't go on a date without it I didn't have any confidence without it and the the kind of mental health side then really kicked in I really started suffering with depression and anxiety and as we know Mm. sometimes it's a bit of a cycle so I was kind of drinking to feel less anxious and then the next day mm-hmm. feeling even more anxious and getting mm-hmm. into that real kind of cycle and by the kind of by my mid-20s I was I was really miserable and unhappy and just drinking was the only thing that was kind of cheering me up at the time and I also started to black out quite severely I'm quite sure I was drinking very quickly um so often I wouldn't remember large parts of my night I wouldn't remember the entire mm. night I wouldn't remember how I got home I was kind of commuting from here it's Kent to London which is about an hour on the train so I was mm-hmm. like commuting home after work I'd fall asleep on the train end up in a place mm. that was miles from my home and putting myself in I think some quite like vulnerable scary situations and yeah. I got to being 26 and I remember going out on a night out with my friends and I was horrendously drunk and I woke up the next day and all my friends were annoyed with me and they said I'd been really embarrassing and they'd wanted to go home mm. and I'd said no I'm not going home and they had tried forced me out of the club and I just woke up and I just thought I just can't do this anymore like it is really Mm. playing havoc on my life my relationships my friendships my finances my mental health my physical health like the list was endless Mm. but I think it was really difficult because where I was that age and also wasn't kind of waking up and the first thing I wanted to do was drink there was the other kind of group of people despite the fact that they were seeing the kind of aftermath of it were like oh no you're right you're not that bad you don't need to stop you know you're fine you're just a party girl you're in your 20s it's expected and so I kind of I had to really think about that decision I said look I'm just gonna stop drinking for a bit I'm gonna see how I feel and that was that and it's five and a half years later and Mm. I'm still sober (laughs) five and a half years what's your sober date it is the 11th of February 2018 beautiful I love that yeah I mean I'm excited to have this conversation today because I think so many people are going to really resonate with this idea of being normal, quote unquote, like from the outside, your friends who were even experiencing some of these negative situations were like, no, but you're fine. Like you're just a party girl. Yeah. This is what we do in your twenties. And one of the things that I find so vital about the sober space is really creating permission for people to see themselves in somebody else's story and say, oh, I can trust my lived experience. I can trust 
that this isn't working for me. One of the things that you mentioned that I think is really important and I would love to, to dig into a little bit is this idea of this anxiety cycle. Can you share a little more about what that felt like for you and how you started to notice it and connect it with the alcohol? Yeah, of course. So I think the first thing to kind of note is that it's a really big problem in terms of all mental health really and kind mm-hmm. of alcohol use when when you're looking at them are really hard to untangle because it's almost chicken and yes. egg in working out what came first and for me I, I still can't fully pinpoint what it was that came first but I do know that when I went to university it was kind of the first time I started struggling with my mental health it was the first time I was like you know away from my comfort zones I was meeting new people I, I was living away and it, it was quite a scary experience so uh, there obviously was kind of anxiety there, but at the same time, as soon as I got there, I really started drinking. So even now, it, I find it really hard to untangle possibly what was cause and what was effect. But either yeah. way, I kind of got swept up, and it does happen very quickly. In that, if I was anxious or in a social situation, you know, for the first eighteen years of my life, I'd met all my friends through school. I'd never really had to go and make friends or t- talk to people. So alcohol really helped with that because it meant that I could have conversations with people if I was feeling awkward or nervous or like I wouldn't have much to say to them and then alcohol would you know brighten me up and I'd be like great I'm really funny and interesting and then Mm. the next day you have such a kind of opposite reaction and and I always say it's like twofold one is like the chemical effects of alcohol when you really Mm. look into it you understand why alcohol kind of does cause anxiety the next day but also for me where I was like blacking out there was these just massive gaps in my memory of like what did I say what did I do so I think that's how I got into it and same with depression really I would Mm -hmm. drink to feel a bit brighter and a bit happier if I was low mood I would drink and then the next day I would just feel horrendous like the lowest of the low and it would get to Thursday and I'd be like you know I've had a really rubbish week I felt really awful I know what will cheer me up I'll go out and drink Mm -hmm. and it's so Mm -hmm. hard to untangle it and really make that connection I think it was only towards like the end of my drinking where I really started like blacking out for long periods of time that I would wake up the next day and be like okay this is the obvious reason why I feel anxious because I literally mm. do not remember what I said or did yeah. at times even where I'd been. So that that was kind of my experience of that. And it, it's really hard to get out of that cycle, especially when you've been relying on alcohol for any kind of mental health struggles that you're going through. Mm. You know, I like the, the chicken and the egg comparison because I think that so many people experience that of like, realizing eventually, you know, we kind of get the distance from it. And you're like, oh, I see. There was so much intertwined in the way I was drinking and the way alcohol was showing up for me and my mental health. And then of course, as you say, you learn more about the neuroscience and the chemical reactions happening in our brains. And you're like, well, no wonder. But (laughs) we have this like strange misconception that alcohol is useful for anxiety, for social anxiety, for elevating our mood, that it's fun, that it's exciting. And I think one of the things at least I experienced on the other side is I discovered that my baseline mental health, my anxiety and my depression is like baseline. What am I trying to say? I take medication for my mental health because I learned that I had been masking so much of my depression, so much of my anxiety, pushing it under the 
the rug, self-medicating it with alcohol that I never knew what my baseline was. I never knew yeah. because like you said, like we start drinking at a young age as our brain chemistry is leveling out. And as we are becoming fully formed humans, you know, we don't finish growing our brain until we're like, what they say 25, I think. Yeah. Um, and most of us start drinking it. 16 to 21, if you will. I just never got an understanding of what my baseline was. And so I automatically started pouring this rocket fuel on it, altering it daily, weekends, all the time with this substance. And I discovered on the other side by removing it that my baseline is like, I'm pretty naturally depressed. I'm pretty naturally Mm -hmm. anxious. And that gave me the ability to actually do something about that and to take care of it in really adaptive ways. And and like I said, I'm very pro-medication. Team Lexapro (laughs) saved my life. Team Sertraline over here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. See, Sertraline, Lexapro. But I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I think it's so important every single time somebody says, my mental health was not good when I was drinking. Maybe that is connected because nobody else tells us this. Nobody else tells us like in high school, it, I don't know if y'all have D.A.R.E. Did y'all have D.A.R.E. in the UK? No, Which what's is, that? Ah, what is it? It's like D.A.R.E. It's D-A-R-E, alcohol. I don't even know what the acronym stands for. I'll have to look it up. But it was basically <laughs> like a drug and alcohol education program that they did for us right, in elementary yeah, yeah. school and like grade school. And it was like, you know, typical 90s, like this is your brain on drugs with a scrambled egg and all of this. But like nobody just told us that alcohol might make us a little depressed. The problem we have here is that you get kind of pushed from different places when you go for help as well. So if you go to a mental health Mm. service, they'll say, okay, well, you're drinking a lot. So we can't really help you until you figure out the drinking. And then you'll Mm. go to an alcohol and drug service and they'll say, oh, you've got a lot of mental health problems. Maybe you need Mm. therapy first to work on those before we can take you off the drugs and alcohol. And then you end up, you know, just bouncing around from one to the other. Wow. That's interesting to me because here in the United States, nobody ever says anything about the alcohol. I cannot Mm. tell you how many people I know that were just put on antidepressants, just put on medication, just told to go to therapy, just told to spend a bunch of money on their mental health. And I had this experience too of going to therapy and being like, I'm really depressed. My life Mm. feels like it is a train wreck. Uh, Outwardly, On the outside, I looked like I was fine. I was married. I had a son. I was running a business. I have always been a a model citizen in the world. And so nobody was like, hey, by the way, how much are you drinking? Because if they were, if they did, they would have discovered that, well, I would have lied first off. But if I had been truthful, (laughs) they would have... They would have discovered that I was drinking at least on the weekends every time, like a bottle of wine. And eventually by the end of it, I was drinking every day. The way... That's interesting to hear a comparison of the UK versus the US because, you know, I think we probably have like a pharma problem here anyway, but the way people are just prescribed medication and told like go off into the world and never asked about their drinking, never told not to drink with it. Even we're often told not to drink with medication, but it's never for, um, it's never described why. So it's like, don't drink this. And so we just assume, okay, there's some sort of like reaction that's going to happen. It's going to make us sick. It's going to make us whatever. But nobody's like, oh, it's going to actually mess with your neurochemistry, which is what you're trying to alter with this medication. And you're trying to like the the lack of education and the lack of concern or, or the lack of like education just around, hey, maybe instead of this medication, I found out when I quit drinking that I use medication and that it's really useful for me. But I think there are probably a lot of people out there in the world who don't need it and they're just 
given it because yeah. they're having all of these these mental health issues. So that's really fascinating to to hear the difference between the UK and the US and that. Yeah. I want to know, we heard your sober story. We heard kind of what led you to changing your relationship with alcohol and why you decided to remove it. How old were you? You said 26? 26, yeah. What was it like after that? It was hard. It really was. I think mm-hmm. it was quite isolating. I was in the period where all me and my friends did was, you know, go to bottomless brunches and <laughs> we were in peak party years. And because as well, I think I was like the party ringleader and, you know, the one that was mm. always down for a good time. And I was the friend you would call if you needed to go out. I think it was a big shock for, for other people firstly, because that's what they kind of know me as, but also me because I had probably for like most of my 20s even you know late teens wrapped my identity up in being the party girl that was my like thing I always thought you know if I can't be the best looking one in the room I'm going to be the funniest one and that involved like (laughs) drinking copious Mm -hmm. amounts and you know trying to be all brave and confident and so when I stopped drinking I was like I don't even know who I am actually (laughs) I have no idea Mm. I don't know what I like doing I don't know how to enjoy my weekends so it was a whole like identity shift really and I'd just been so used to doing everything with alcohol so it it felt again it's so hard because it you know to decide whether it was like a an addiction or Mm -hmm. not because I I needed it I I thought about it a lot I it was uh, social situations were so tough without it so yeah yeah it was hard 100% but also at the same time I instantly started feeling better you know getting the pink cloud Mm -hmm. and whatnot Mm-hmm. not going out every weekend and not trashing my body, I did start to feel better. So you kind of had this like, well, half of this is really rubbish and half, like, <laughs> I feel amazing. I'm waking up on a Sunday and I don't want to throw up. Like, this mm-hmm. is great. Right. How did you make that into a sustainable life to where you are now? I think it was having conversations with people firstly and being really honest. I think like at the beginning, I kind of tried to avoid it. And I just said, oh, you know, like I'm I'm just not not drinking for a moment or like I'm just seeing how it goes. I think trying to like fully own it was one of the like best things that I could have done. And mm. to like stop worrying about people's perceptions and, and also just to do things. Like it's really hard because... At the beginning, I realized that for a lot of people, like maybe going out straight away is not sustainable. It might be triggering. It might be hard. But I there were a lot of things at the beginning of my sobriety that I was kind of like forced into that I well, not forced you know everyone has a choice but <laughs> hen parties or like bachelorette parties that I'd signed yes. up for weddings I'd signed up for that I I really felt like I couldn't get out of and so I had a lot of big things quite early on and actually looking back I think it was one of the best things that I could have done because it taught me so early that yeah mm. actually do you know what it's, it's fine I got through it, it I, I actually had some really nice times and I just kind of kept doing that I think some I've met like so many people now from running events and everyone kind of has a different story and there are a lot of people who have said you know I I avoided going out for six months and then they said when it got to it I built it up so big in my head (laughs) that I was like terrified whereas I kind of didn't really have the option to be terrified because I just threw myself in straight away and and for me that I think really worked but not necessarily recommending that to to everyone if you feel like you don't want to be in an environment where people are drinking heavily like don't but I don't know it was kind of like baptism by fire for me and it kind of worked out all right in the end totally well and and I think one of the things that I think is relevant there is this idea of I built it up in my head because yeah that's what I tell folks I'm like the first one's always going to be the worst but it's going to be fine 
and it's not going to be as bad as you think it is. And then you never have to do that for the first time ever again. First bachelor party, check. First wedding, check. It will never be the same as the first time. And I think too, folks are really keen to use those kind of things as an excuse to keep drinking and say like, oh, I'll just do it after I have that bachelorette party or I'll quit after that wedding. So how did you stick with it when you were thrown into those situations so early? How did you not have that, oh, I'll just do it later thought in your brain? I think it was constantly reminding myself about why I was doing it. I remember like I would always search in my like WhatsApp chats hungover. If I was on a night out, I would search hungover and I would look at like messages I'd sent the next morning that were like, oh my God, I'm so hungover. I like want to die, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I would look at them and be like, I never want to feel that way ever again. I read any book that I could get my hands on, which at the time was not many. No, um, it wasn't. And yeah, kind of really spoke to my friends as well and said, like, I really love it if you keep me accountable. And I was, I was very lucky that like, you know, after the initial shock of why is she doing this? They were kind of like, mm. actually, no, we'll, we'll really support it. it. Obviously means a lot to us. So trusting people like that I think I started like meeting other sober people and that was really key for like accountability and not feeling completely isolated and having like good boundaries as well like I would say yes to things like the weddings and but I would say you know what guys like I'm actually not drinking so if it gets to 11 o'clock and I'm like I'm done for the night please <laughs> just like let me go I'm I'm here I'm showing my face I'm doing my best having those conversations I think was really helpful did you ever have anybody react negatively to that yeah yeah, definitely. I I always say it's a, it's a weird one with my friends, especially because I think when I told them, like I had said over the course of my life, I am never drinking again, probably about 48,000 times. <laughs> yeah, so when have. I first told them, yeah, who hasn't? Who hasn't? And so when I first told them, it wasn't like they reacted negatively because I think they just thought it was a bit of a joke. Like I think they thought, mm. oh, she'll like by next week, she'll be drinking again. And I think after a few months, it suddenly dawned on them that I was actually sticking with it. And by that point, they were like, oh, it's a bit late now. So we're just going to mm-hmm. get on board. But I've definitely had people react negatively over the years. And weirdly, it always tends to be older people, like maybe people I've worked with, colleagues, like people kind of said, oh, you, you know, you snowflakes don't know how to have fun anymore or young people are boring, that, that kind of thing, I think. <laughs> Most of my friends were luckily really good about it but I've, I've definitely I mean I've been on dating apps when I've been sober and most mm. of the negativity I think has come through telling people I don't drink when they ask me if I want to go for mm. a drink so yeah I think that they're probably the negative reactions I've definitely had my fair share the people who have the negative reactions I'm always like where's that coming from I have the the ability now I'm almost six years sober now I have the ability to step back and be like I I can investigate this and I can figure out where that's coming from. I didn't have that ability when I first quit drinking. It always felt very personal. But I feel like so many of the people that have had a negative reaction to my sobriety, it's like they've got their own stuff going on. Or the older generations, like you mentioned, like they just didn't have the option when they were our age, when they were 26 or 27 to to quit drinking. And it's like, there's like this visceral reaction to like, well, we didn't do that back in my day. It's like, well, yeah, but... Now we like talk about our problems and our mental health and uh, we try to fix ourselves and and that's worthy too. I think there's there's this 
generational change. Like I know my mom's side of the family family doesn't quite understand how like all of the cousins are all on medication and we're all in therapy <laughs> and half of us are gay. And it's like the older generation just looks at us like, what are they doing? What are yeah. they doing? Like, why are they not just like being complacent in life and like going about their business and just dealing with it? So I hear a little bit of that too. Yeah. If you've been hanging out with Super Stories for a while, you know all about Quitlet, the genre of literature covering the diverse experience of quitting drinking. In fact, we've had some amazing authors on the podcast like Ruby Warrington of Sober Curious and Amanda E. White of Not Drinking Tonight. Since I know you already enjoy plugging into your sober space via your headphones, we've got the perfect partner for you. It's time to check out Audible. Audible is the leading creator and provider of premium audio storytelling, enriching the lives of millions of listeners every day. Books on Tape have gotten a serious upgrade. With over 200,000 podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals available, you can tune into your latest Quitlet read on your next hot girl walk or school pickup line. Get a free 30-day trial, including one credit or two for Prime members, good for any premium selection by visiting audibletrial.com slash sober stories. That's audibletrial.com slash sober stories. As a person who spills her guts about her drinking problem on the internet, the number one question I get asked on a daily basis is what my favorite NA rec is. Listen, I've been sober for five years and I've tried them all. I can earnestly tell you that Ritual Zero Proof is my tried and true non-alcoholic spirit brand. The one I regularly restock. The one making my recycling bin glike around again, just like the bad old days, except this time I don't have hangovers. The one that even my normie friends tell me is pretty fantastic. You're gonna wanna go ahead and order you some other tequila alternative, mixing it with some lime and tahini, and sip the summer away without the splitting headache and regret. It has a ginger base, which gives it a nice bite that you get from like a spicy margarita. Use the code RZPSTORIES for 20% off your order at RitualZeroProof.com. Cheers, y'all. I want to talk about sober dating and I'm so glad you brought this up. What is that like for you? I mean, before you do it, it is terrifying, I think, because you're like going on a date, whether you're drinking or not, is a completely nerve wracking experience. So to add going into it sober, I think is absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. But I always say, I think it was one of the best things that I ever did. I think once once you know you got used to having the odd negative reaction I always say like when I used to go on a date when I was drinking I could have fallen in love with anyone like literally mm. anyone sat opposite them and then like I'd done it before I'd gone on a date with them three weeks later like maybe something that wasn't as boozy and I'd be like I have nothing in common with this person why <laughs> did I think that we were like gonna get married like mm. but when I stopped drinking it was so it was so much easier to realize if I actually had like authentic chemistry with someone, like, is this a person that I could sit to and chat for hours without a drink? If not, then they're definitely not my person. So it was kind of like yeah. a good, not process of elimination, but almost kind of it, it stopped me having to go on dates with so many people, especially like if they did react negatively, that would just not be the type of people that I would want to be with. I think it mm -hmm. saved me so much time, like in a really kind of cold hearted way. I think it's actually quite an efficient way to date because I wasn't wasting time. Totally. If I went on a date and was like, we have nothing in common and don't get me wrong, they could be perfectly lovely, but you're just not on the same wavelength. I think it saved me a lot of time in, in that respect. It's also like it weeds people out pretty quick too. 
Like if yeah. they see your dating profile and they're like, oh, I, I'm not down with that, then in my view, it's like good riddance. Like you yeah. saved me time by not having yeah. to go on a date with you and discover that you're actually an asshole. What I do find really interesting though, so I was single when I first stopped drinking, so like five and a half years ago. And then I was in a relationship for about two years. And then I about a year and a half ago, I was single again. The first time that I was single the reactions were definitely not as like nice as they were a few years down Mm -hmm. the line. I think attitudes have really changed even in that short span. Like when I first told people like five and a half years ago, it was like, I just told them I had like a third head or like Uh it was such a, people were like, Oh my God, that's such a strange thing to do. Like, or they would ask why. And you know, which is a fair enough comment. But then I noticed a couple of years ago, it's becoming a bit like six degrees of sober separation in that everyone knows a sober person that I would say I didn't drink. And they'd be like, Oh, that's really cool. Like my best friend doesn't drink. And my cousin doesn't drink. Like everyone knows someone now. So attitudes, I think were a lot more accepting on, on the like second round of sober dating I really just didn't get hardly anyone saying anything negative which was like nice and surprising and I've also been doing a lot of work with tinder lately because they have released like a future trends of dating report and one of their biggest trends that they're seeing is sober dating which I just think is so cool like they've got this really like fun data on emoji use so like the beer emoji and the wine emoji on dating profiles have like dramatically dropped which is like so interesting that's cool I love that they're studying that in in realizing that this is a trend because I think people like you and I know that things are changing, that sentiments are changing, but like, I'll tell somebody that and they're like, yeah, right. Everyone still drinks. And I'm like, yeah, that's not true anymore. Like it is so not true. And younger generations and like the wellness communities are starting to pick up. So when you think about dating sober, one of the things you said earlier that really stuck out to me too, is like finding confidence in alcohol. How do you go about, like, how do you prepare yourself to go on a date with somebody, which is inherently nerve wracking and vulnerable and just kind of like uncomfortable? How do you do that without feeling like you need that liquid courage? Yeah. I think there's like a couple of answers to this. There's like the the short term answer that people want to hear and the long term answer that I actually think is more the true answer. I think it is really about accepting that it is going to be terrifying. And I always say like confidence is like a skill. It's something you learn. It's not necessarily something you're like born with. Mm. You actually have to try and practice and learn how to be confident. So I would, you know, do the first date and I would be so terrified. And then afterwards I'd be like, oh, okay, it's fine. I, I was all right. I got through it. And you like start to build this like innate confidence. Whereas I'd always relied on like a synthetic confidence that I had to reach mm. for. I started to really build like an inner confidence. So then I would do the second date and that would build a bit of confidence. And then by like date four or five, I was like, it's fine. I've got this. Like you just start to build that confidence within yourself that you had always relied on alcohol for. But then there's the short answer of like the little things that I think you can do. I, I always think like meet a friend beforehand, like nothing will hype you up. Like going for like dinner with your girlfriend beforehand. She's like, you look great. Mm. Like, you know, go into it. Like, I think that's a really good one. I always like music. I always say I always need like a 
hype playlist. Go somewhere that you're going to feel comfortable, somewhere that's got really good alcohol-free options. Like, Make mm. sure it's not like a ridiculously busy bar with really loud yeah. music. And then the biggest one, which I think is the one that everyone gives, is do like an activity date. Because I think if at mm. the last, like if you have nothing else to talk about and you literally lose all the thoughts in your head, yeah. you can talk about the activity that you're doing. So if that's like a mini goal for kayaking or whatever thing that you want to mm-hmm. do on this day, at least you have that to fall back on. So, and the focus Mm. just isn't around drinking. I'm glad you said that though, because I think that seems obvious to us, but I don't think that's obvious to everyone. I get people all the time that are are like, the only thing people do for dating is meeting for drinks at a bar. And I'm like, okay, first off, you can choose a bar and still meet for drinks and go to one that has good NA options. But other than like, I live in Austin, Texas. It's hot as I'll get out right now, but like, when the weather's nice, we have so many things that you can do. You can go to a patio. You can go kayaking. Like you said, you can go on a hike and go to mini golf. You can go to the bowling alley. You can go to the movies. Like there's so many things that you can do that don't center around alcohol. And it's one more example of how we have really, we, we have centered alcohol. We have centered alcohol in the way we perceive socializing, dating, fun, confidence. I think that it's like this unlearning of, oh, wait, there are actually so many more options than alcohol. We have yeah. just practiced, as you said, we have practiced using alcohol for all of these things. And we've also been told this by marketing in a lot of ways that this is the only way to have fun. I really love what you said about confidence to practice though, because I think people perceive confidence as an inherent trait. And mm-hmm. it's like, you either are, or you are not confident. And people will be like, well, how are you confident? I'm like, you do it. Like you, yeah. it's, a, it's an action. Like you actively do this. And I, and I think the same can be said for quitting drinking and removing alcohol from your life and building a life without alcohol. It is practice. I believe mm. that sobriety is both like both like the tangible stuff like you said so you gave like tangible examples of how to date sober but it's also the actual practice of just doing it like I can't I wish I could play guitar like the people on TikTok do but I would have to practice it it is a skill that I have to build it is something that I can build on brick by brick by brick and that's the same thing for confidence that's the same thing for sobriety yeah fully agree it's yeah it's about practicing it and doing those scary things and then doing something a little scarier and then doing something Mm -hmm. even more scarier and just building on that and it is a life thing that you will just keep practicing I mean don't get me wrong I'm not the most confident person in all situations but there are things Mm -hmm. that I can do now that I never would have been able to do without a drink that now feel quite easy or not even easy but like second nature to me totally absolutely so uh, tell us about Sober Girl Society what was what was the impetus? How did it come to be? Give us the story there. Yeah. Yeah. So I always say in the nicest way possible, Sober Girl Society was quite a selfish project in that it was <laughs> something I needed that just wasn't yes. out there. Like I wanted to find other women who didn't drink because even though my friends were like so supportive I always say it's a bit like being the only like single one when all your friends are like in a relationship or married they can be really lovely and be really well-meaning give you great advice but they don't know what you're going through and I was asking questions like oh my god I'm going on a sober date what do I do and they were like well, I don't know I've never been on a sober <laughs> date and I was like well who's gonna help me with this so I was mm-hmm. desperate to find other people and I couldn't find 
anything online that was for like young women, especially in Britain. There just wasn't anything around. And I think at the time I was stopping drinking. Like so, so now I have so much knowledge about AA. I have friends who have been through the program, friends who swear by the program. Like I'm all for AA if that's what's right for you. But for me, when I first stopped drinking and none of this like sober scene was around, the only thing I knew about AA was what I had seen on the television, which was that it was going to be a bunch of 50, 60 year old men. (laughs) And I thought I'm going to walk in there and say, actually, I can go, you know, a few days without drinking. But when I do drink, I just drink really, really hard. I thought they'd laugh me out and be like, you know, come back when you've mm. lost your job. And I know that isn't the case because mm. I know there's so many different types of AA. Like I've got friends that go to like LGBT groups and women only groups. Like I know that isn't the case now, but that is what I felt at the time. Yes. So I thought, well, and, and AA is not going to be for me. I need to find other people though. And at the time I followed loads of like communities on Instagram that had like a shared purpose. So whether that was like a body positive community mm-hmm. or, you know, they love knitting or whatever it was. And I just thought, <laughs> yeah. God, there's nothing here for women talking about like non-alcoholic drinks or you know how do you go to a wedding sober and I I was working in journalism at the time so kind of coincidentally at the same time I started pitching to a lot of magazines that that were in my building saying you know hey I'm like eight months sober and I really want to write about it and you know a few of them I think gave me pity commissions which was lovely (laughs) said you know you can write like our Christmas roundup of non-alcoholic drinks yeah Yeah, I was like I will take it so I started writing about it and then I thought well do you know what it'd be really cool maybe I can come buying these I can create a space I could kind of write a bit about my experience but also it'd be great to like meet up with people and I just started it and people are always like oh how did it get so big and I'm like I genuinely don't know because I've never Mm. actively gone out there and like pitched it or like never done PR for it or anything like that I just think that it was needed there was nothing else and I was desperate for so other people must have been desperate for it mm-hmm. and yeah that's that's how it started I mean but that's it though fill, see a gap and yeah. fill the need and <laughs> yeah and you're right what, what was the year that you started Sober Girl Society 2018 so I was yeah. I think I was seven or eight months sober yeah there was nothing then I mean I, no. I talk all the time I, I got sober in 2016 2017 and before that I was probably sober curious for about a year before that at the time the only people I could find talking about it were Holly and Laura and yeah. those were two really transformational examples of this for me because I was also a very similar, I I had a similar experience as you of like AA didn't feel like a fit. And so it was like, for me, it was like either AA and calling myself an alcoholic, or I guess I'll just keep drinking. And so when I started to find more people, but, but at the time there just really wasn't anything. And there wasn't this story of like being a young woman and still being single and partying and like hanging out with friends. And that is what people need to see to be able to picture themselves to be able to say, Oh, I see what Millie's doing. I see my, I like, I can put myself in her shoes. I can see myself being that person. And now you have this huge organization that does all sorts of things. So what do y'all do now? Oh, we do so much. So originally it kind of started as a content platform. So it had like social posts and a blog. And then we started getting people saying, Oh, I'd love to meet other people. And I was like, well, I also want to meet other people. But I thought (laughs) if I start running events, I was like, no one's going to turn up. So I started running these posts um that were like find your sober sisters which we still run to this day and then people could start like commenting on them saying where they were from and I actually had a girl message me and said oh hey this is a bit random but I've seen that like 
20 people have said that they're from London. Would you mind if I organized a meetup for us all? And I was like, absolutely not. I was like, but can you just tell me when it is? Because I would love to be there. So the first Sober Girls Society event, I did not even organize. I just turned up. I love it. I was like, oh, hi. Delegation. And yeah, exactly. And so that girl's name is Lucy. And Lucy is incredible. She has helped me since that day, which is just so, so lovely of her. Because she felt the same thing. She was like, I want to find other people. She's like a makeup artist. She lives in London. She's young and she couldn't find it. So we had our first little sober meetup and we like went and made like we iced biscuits of like sober celebrities. So we were doing like Russell Brand. It was, it was so wholesome. And then we kind of sat down, me and Lucy afterwards, and we were like, God, there's obviously a need for it. Like, let's run more. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of went from there. And we, we let really like the community dictate what it is that we were doing because we wanted to ask them what was beneficial. So we were looking at problems that were coming up. So a lot of people said, oh, look, I know it's like really cliche, but I just couldn't get on a dance floor sober. So we were like, okay, mm-hmm. let's do dance classes. Let's teach people. Yep. You can you can dance sober. You can feel empowered. And so now that's like one of our most popular events that we run. And I'm sure there are people out there that think, oh God, that's so trivial. How is dancing going to keep anyone sober? Yeah. But the amount of people after us that have been like, I can never have got on a dance floor sober. And now yeah. I've like really conquered this fear. And you see the girls come in and they're like, shy and awkward and then they leave and they're like strutting out the door and I'm like this Mm -hmm. is just amazing so we do things like that we do boozeless brunches we do mixer events so that people can just like come and chat it's a really informal space we do virtual workshops we do virtual zoom calls which again are not like a we're not a recovery program and I try and emphasize that a lot we don't do coaching we don't do like huge big courses but we provide a lot of like resources, but essentially at the heart mm-hmm. of it, we are a community. So what we're doing is mm-hmm. trying to just find you mates Connect. who also don't drink. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the main part of it. And then obviously we have the book and loads of other little things that are going on as well. So yeah, that that's what we do now. The main bulk of it is the events, which is my favorite part. Just casually mention that you have a book, just casually. It's, just it's no big deal. <laughs> Did you ever think back to like Millie of like 2016, 2017, could you have possibly comprehended, predicted, wrapped your brain around what you do now? No, because I think 2016 Millie would have thought I was such a loser. Like I really do. I think (laughs) she would be like, oh God, what is she doing? Because I was just so like my entire identity was being the party girl. And like, I know you were speaking earlier about kind of when people have like a negative reaction to your sobriety, that it comes from them. And I'm really able to understand that because I was one of the worst. Like if my friends were drinking quick enough, if they didn't want to go to the next bar, if they turned down my shots, I took it every one of those as like a personal offense. And looking back now, it's because I didn't want everyone else to realize how drunk I was and them not be on the same level. And it normalized my drinking if everyone else was drinking Mm -hmm. at that kind of speed. So yeah, that Millie was a whole different person. I think that that has been really beneficial for me as well in empathizing with a lot of different things in people changing you know people say oh once a cheater always a cheater I don't believe mm-hmm. that I don't subscribe to that philosophy because I think the person mm-hmm. I was in 2016 would not recognize the person that I am today mm-hmm. so no she would think I was a complete and utter loser I think she'd probably think it was really <laughs> cool I'd written a book because I had always wanted to write, write a book I studied English at uni like writing was my thing so she would think that part was cool but the fact it was about sobriety I feel like she would feel quite let down by that <laughs> she would feel let down <laughs> I like that. You've let, you've let us down. <laughs> yeah, you've let us down. You've just created this whole 
global platform <laughs> that helps hundreds of thousands of women see yeah. themselves in a, a really healthy adaptive choice. Like what a loser. <laughs> yeah, she what would, a loser. She She'd be like, you don't drink tequila anymore. So, you know, whatever. See, that's what is so messed up about alcohol. Like it's so messed up the way we view it, yeah. the way we have like wrapped our lives around it, integrated. I'm like, it is like stepping out of the matrix yeah, when you get to 100%. the other side. You're like, oh wait, life is not all about this one liquid. Like I literally yeah. have two different beverages sitting on my desk yeah. right now. <laughs> like it's just a liquid. It's just a beverage. Yeah. My life does not revolve around this thing. And I ask that question because I think one of the things I witness a lot in this space is when somebody quits drinking, they feel like their life is going to get very small mm. and they think so much is going to change and there's going to be so much loss. And then almost universally, I'm not going to say universally, but almost universally, what I witness on the other side is that people's lives get so big, so big and expansive. And there are so many new opportunities and creativity and inspiration and friendships and connections and relationships that just never would have had the space to have the depth that they do. And life just gets so big. Thinking about 2016, 2017, Millie thinking like, oh, what a loser. Like comparatively, what you have now and what you do now is so big and expansive and really powerful. And it just like pinpoints to me how backwards we've gotten it, how yeah. backwards so we view backwards. alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And I always find that like where you say the bigger thing, like I completely agree is true. And I think, you know, we can't pretend that there isn't any loss because obviously you do lose right. some things to some people that might be friends or whatever. But but there is so much gain that outweighs that. And just like when I look at how I spent my weekends, I literally, my weekends were like Friday night, go out, get drunk, be really hungover Saturday, get convinced to get out of bed, go out Saturday mm. night and be hungover on Sunday. I look at the last five years, I'm like, I have been alpaca trekking, I have wow. surfed, I have gone paddleboarding, I've been to like a knit club, like there's mm-hmm. so many different things. I'm like, how can, I, I know how people can view it as boring, but I I can't imagine how I ever viewed it as boring because it's just mm. not. My life is so varied and I love that variety so much. It goes back to what you said earlier about like, is it addiction or is it not? Being able to drink, you know, go a couple days without drinking. That's not what we viewed it as before, or that's not what we viewed addiction, quote unquote, as. Mm. But to think about centering something so much in your life and having your whole life revolve around it and letting it keep you from all these other things. Like, I think that's a really interesting question. Like, is it addiction Mm. or is it not? And I think that's one of the really powerful things that people are starting to reframe in this space of it's addiction is not what we were taught it was when we were younger. And it can include a lot more people and look a lot differently across spectrums than we understood it. And also if it's a label or if it's a, a name that doesn't resonate with you, like you also don't have to take it on. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely not comparable. But one of the things I remember thinking about was around like, so obviously now we, we kind of call it alcohol use disorder is that when you look mm-hmm. at like eating disorders, you mm-hmm. have lots of different types of eating disorders. You might have yeah. binging, you might have bulimia, you might have anorexia. And it kind of, it it can kind of look similar when you're drinking. Like for some people it's, you know, binging and purging and, and, 
for some people it's like really extreme some people it's daily I'm not not saying they're comparable but just in the way that we have a lot of variations of one disorder Mm -hmm. I think we have the same kind of with alcohol use disorders people will drink in different ways and I think we're starting Mm -hmm. to understand that not all drinking problems have to look exactly the same because people drink for all sorts of different reasons Mm. and in different ways I think that 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 is brilliant in my mind because that helps me reorganize exactly what you're saying. And it's so true. We don't just say like just eating disorder, blanket treatment for all of these people, blanket help for all of these people who have an eating disorder. It is. Yeah. How do we actually treat the specific struggle that person is going through, which is very different between the different types of eating disorders. And I Mm. think that that more personalized approach to care, to support, to treatment is vital there. And we understand it to be vital there. What happens if we were to extend that? to yeah. the alcohol space. And also, it, you know, I think too about a lot of like early intervention of mm. being 26. I was 27 when I quit drinking. I think I, th- I think it was Holly who calls it um, an early exiter. Like you've exited yes. the highway early. You've, you've said, I see where this is going. And like when I am 60, I will be under a bridge with a 40 in my hand. Like we yeah. have been taught addiction is. So I'm going to like choose to get off the highway now. And this idea of different... what. I'm trying to like organize this in my brain, but this idea of different types of alcohol use disorder, understanding that it it doesn't have to be zero to 60. It can also be, well, y'all have a different speed than we do. (laughs) I'm talking about miles per hour. Talking about miles per hour. Zero to 60. Yeah, we have miles. Okay. It can be like zero to 20 or like zero to 40. Like those are still relevant speeds at which you can exit the highway as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, like one of the biggest comments I used to get, people would be like, oh, you're not that bad. And I'd be like, well, so mm-hmm. do I just wait until I am that bad? Like it's, mm-hmm. at what, what point do you want me to stop? Like, and I, there's a couple of analogies that I always use. The one I used in the book was about like the fire. Like if you see a fire in your house, you don't go, mm. oh, that'll be all right. I've probably got another few hours for the whole building burns down. No, you grab the fire extinguisher and you put it out. You can see there's a problem and you do something about it. Mm. And the other one is just the idea idea that like it's so strange say in terms of smoking people don't ever say oh like you're not that bad like what do you do just wait like wait until the lung collapses and and then we'll we'll mm-hmm. reassess it no like you don't wait until you're that bad just, the best thing you can do is do something about it because if you do get that bad then it is so hard to come back yeah. from so much of it comes down to trusting ourselves to like say, I know my lived experience. Yeah, You can tell me I'm not that bad, but I know how I feel when I wake up in the morning and had a blackout and don't remember anything. Yeah. And I know how my body feels when I'm hungover. And I know that I didn't want to do that thing that I did when I was drunk. And it's like yeah. also going inward and realizing like, okay, my experience is valid and I can trust it and I can believe myself when I see that fire. I'm, I'm not imagining yeah. the fire. The fire is there. I can trust that I am accurately seeing that. And now I have the ability to go yeah. get the fire extinguisher. I mean, even if you're not sure if it's a fire, like get the extinguisher anyway, just have it ready <laughs> just in case. Like just at least yeah. be aware that you're kind of maybe seeing fires, maybe not, rather than just being like, I think I saw a fire, but I'm just going to ignore it. Like, no, that's totally. not a good thing to do. And this could take us on a whole nother tangent, but that makes me think too about the way people who can quote unquote drink normally perceive what I share. I have a lot of people in my life who have told me they're like, I don't 
have, you know, a problem with drinking, but the way you talk about like mommy wine culture has made me look out for a fire or notice a fire in my sister-in-law or like even just changing the narrative for people who can quote unquote drink normally of this is, this is what this can look like. This happens to so many more people than we understand it to. These can be smaller fires than the big house fire. It's just something that's like moving us all in the right direction of being more well. Definitely. And I mean, like I've got friends that have say like different issues. So mm-hmm. like one of my friends went through something with gambling and I can't relate because I can, and I, I don't purely these days because I, I now I'm so aware of it. I'm like, it could be a slippery slope, but I used to, I was yeah. like, get a scratch card, like do the lottery. And it was never a thing. So I also equally understand how for some people, drinking to the excess that I did mm-hmm. is also not a thing for them like in the same mm-hmm. way that gambling isn't a thing for me but it speaking to them and having those conversations has really opened my mind to it like when I see gambling adverts and you know when the fun stops stops and I'm really aware of like the same kind of messaging and and I can mm. spot it in other people as well and I'm like keep an eye out for it you know maybe I'll keep a check on that like mm. just having those conversations and being aware of that I think is so helpful I get so many people that actually like direct message me and it's not even about them they'll say like oh I followed you because I, I'm worried about a loved one's drinking and I've seen some of the things that you mentioned in them I've given them your resources it's not when you're talking and when anyone in this kind of sober space is talking you're not always talking to the people who mm-hmm. don't drink like even I've had mums follow me and say like you know mm-hmm. my daughter's turning 18 I'm a bit worried about them so you know I followed you and I'm going to give them a copy of your book in case they ever need it and I think we have to like be aware that it's not always we're just speaking to that people like yeah. to the person trying to not drink mm, it's great this has been wonderful I so admire the spaces that you've created for women and I think that this is so pivotal and I'm so grateful that in the year 2023 there are so many more resources for people out there to build a life without alcohol that feels really fun and expansive and like just objectively cool So I love what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) I always ask one last question in every Sober Stories episode. And as I told you at the top, this might be an obvious answer, but it might not. (laughs) So if your story, the story of Millie, were to be written into a book, what would it be called and why? I mean, yeah, I think the the obvious answer is probably the Sober Girl Society Handbook, but (laughs) I I would say it's because it's not really fully a memoir. It's we, I say Mm -hmm. it's like part narrative memoir, part self-help, because although it's like a little bit about me, it's more about the the reader and, you know, Mm -hmm. all the tools and everything like that. So I think, I think if I died tomorrow, I think it would be something like 30 flirty and surviving like just trying to get through my 30s I think that yeah if I died tomorrow that's that's what I'd call it so yeah (laughs) 30 flirty and surviving I feel like yeah yeah, I really I really resonate yeah I just turned 34 (laughs) and like that sounds about right I really thought at 34 I would be like sophisticated and know what I was doing and no we're all just just surviving yeah. just figuring it out I'm, I'm with you I'm 32 <laughs> next month and I've still got no idea and people say to me oh you look like you've really got it figured out I'm like oh, I have a mental breakdown every day so no <laughs> <laughs> just a little casual meant to be what it has taught yeah. me is that literally no one knows what they're doing so that that's yeah. great that gives me tons of permission yeah. to just do whatever I want to 
A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Millie, this has been wonderful. I know our community is really going to resonate with so much of this and want to plug into the, your work if they're not already there. If folks want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Yeah, best places are probably Instagram. So just at Millie Gooch and at SoberGirlSite. We also have the website SoberGirlSite.com. So yeah, they're probably the best places to come and say hello. Beautiful. And y'all have any upcoming events there in the UK? We've got loads actually. So we've got loads in London, we've got Leeds, we've got Manchester, we've got Edinburgh, we've got Birmingham. They are, yeah, all happening. And then we run, um, so our virtual workshops are actually, we do them in a time zone that's quite good for you guys. So that's that's a good one to look out for. So we had um, Yasmin come on recently, who's an alcohol-free um, mixologist and she was Oh my incredible. gosh, she's been on the podcast before. I love her. Oh, has she? So, yeah. Oh, she's love her. the best. Yeah. And I, what I love about Yasmin as well is she really likes like breaks down mixology because we think it's such a like I don't know elite thing and she was like anyone can make alcohol free cocktail she was like you don't even need a cocktail shaker you can make them in a jar and I was like yes mm-hmm. like this is what we need um yeah. yeah she was just incredible and then we've got like Abby Felton coming up who's going to talk about kind of navigating shame and mental health in sobriety um so yeah anyone can come to those and then we have like our weekly uh, virtual clubs on a Saturday morning but I don't think those time zones really work for you guys but people mm. keep asking me about okay. a US one so watch this space we've we've got a good amount of uk listeners here too so we'll make sure to include all that in the show notes thank you so much for having me thank you for sharing your story with us and for taking some time out of your day to share your sober story Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Millie Gooch. I really appreciate the way that Millie is opening up spaces for people to be able to see a fun, flirty, 30 and thriving version of living without alcohol and really changing the narrative around what we view this substance to be. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know and we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends. Bye.